Sam did, uh, and I am going to be preaching tonight. Uh, it's lovely to see you all here tonight. I'm one of the student ministers here, if we haven't met. And it's really great for us to be looking through this book to John. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I love, I love getting postcards from people when they come home, when they're away on holidays. I just love postcards. They're so exotic. They're, you know, they've got these beautiful sort of pictures on the front of like this beautiful deserted island with a palm tree and a blue sky or some ruined city in Croatia or something or a desert in Africa or a pyramid probably also in Africa. They're exotic, aren't they? They're the kind of thing I like to live in my pigeonhole at home, you know, where I live at college so that other people can see that I've got exotic friends. But the other thing I like about postcards is they're punchy. They are punchy. Rather than some long-winded email or letter which assumes you're fascinated by every restaurant your friend's been to, sometimes it's nice just to get a picture on the front and a little note on the back that says, having a wonderful time, wish you were here. Of course, brevity isn't always brilliant. Uh, Oscar Wilde very famously wrote his then-girlfriend the same message except he slightly altered it. Uh, Having a wonderful time, wish you were her. Now, you might be surprised to know that the Bible is not just a collection of letters but actually has its own postcards, 2 and 3 John. They're like postcards in the Bible. They are the shortest books here and they've also got this punchy message. Look with me down at 2 John 4. This is its punchy message. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Look down the page at 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What's the punchy message that John is sending to these people in his postcard? It's walking in the truth. Now we all know that truth is incredibly important, isn't it? Our society would fall to bits without truth and honesty. That's why contracts are binding. That's why perjury is a crime. But it's particularly important in relationships. Relationships stand or fall on honesty. Some of the most joyful moments in relationships, whether they're friendships or going out or marriage, are those characterised by honesty, that unguarded moment where you honestly think you could tell that person absolutely anything. And conversely, the opposite's true. Sometimes the most painful moments in a relationship are characterised by deceit, and betrayal. Anyone who's been deceived knows just exactly how painful that feeling is. Imagine how poor Oscar's girlfriend felt. Truth is the foundation of love. Truth is the foundation of love. But we know that, but sometimes that's difficult to work out in practice, isn't it? Sometimes truth and love seem incompatible. Maybe you've been in this situation. You've been sitting in a Bible study, maybe a Bible study here at church and someone says something wrong. They say something wrong. It's it's not terribly wrong but it's definitely wrong and they're adamant about it. You want to correct them but they're new and they're well-meaning. Maybe they've got problems with confidence and it just seems so unloving to correct them. And so you don't. Love trumps truth. But the converse is also true, isn't it, sometimes, that truth can trump love. There can be that terrible, brutal honesty 
that doesn't seem to care about the person at all, but's a champion for truth and doesn't care anything about the person. Aren't the insults that you've received the worst that actually contain a grain of truth? Aren't they the ones that hurt the most? The poet William Blake said, a truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. Truth can trump love. So the question for us this evening is this, how do truth and love fit together? How do these equally important things fit together in the Christian life? Well, that's the punchy message that 2 John and 3 John have for us in the next, in the next two weeks. So let's get into it. If you're a note taker, I've got three points of roughly equal length. The first point, knowing the truth. The second point, loving in the truth. And the third point, defending the truth. First point, knowing the truth. Like any postcard or letter, we need to know who sent it and who received it in order to understand it. Look with me at verse 1. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. It says it's written by the elder in the early church, although it doesn't say that it's the Apostle John, the early church has always said that it's him, the same author of John's Gospel and Revelation and the other letters here. And it's written to this chosen lady and her children. Now, for reasons which I won't go into now, that's probably not an actual family, but a church. And these people, this uh, John, the elder, and this church, obviously know one another well. In fact, if you look at it, they don't just know one another, they love one another. You see there again in verse 1, he doesn't just know them in the truth, he loves them in the truth. Look at verse 12, he's longing to see them. I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. And it's not just him who loves them, but it's his whole church who loves them. They've obviously had a, some kind of a powwow. There's obviously some continual communication between these churches because there's such a close relationship. It's not just he who loves them in verse 1, but not only I, but also all who know the truth. And they all send their greetings, verse 13. The children of your chosen sister, i.e. my church, they send their greetings as well. There's this relationship of love and truth between these two churches. But they don't just love one another. As I've said, they love one another in the truth, verse 1. You see it there in verse 2. Because of the truth. Now, it's an strange expression, isn't it? What does it mean to love one another in the truth? Well, I think it means something like this. I think it simply means that truth is the basis of their relationship. It's what's brought them together. So, people generally come into relationship with one another because they've got something in common. Maybe it's because they work in the same office or they're in the same mother's group or they play soccer together. The expression brothers in arms captures it really nicely. It's fighting together that's brought them together. They are brothers, not physically, not biologically, but in arms. They're brothers because of their circumstance. And here I think it's exactly the same thing. They believe the same things. They believe the truth. And that's what's brought them together. But what exactly is that truth? Well, John doesn't define it here but he does in his first letter. Come with me to 1 John 5, 11 to 12. It should be just across the page from you. John's talking about the testimony that it comes from God, the truth that comes from God, and he says this, verse 11 of chapter 5, And this is the testimony, 
God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. That is the truth that they love one another in. That is the thing they share in common. That's what they've been brought together by. You see, that really is, particularly this is very good information for you if you've never come to church before, that's really the guts of Christianity, that verse that I've just read out then. It's that God has given us eternal life through his Son. That's the message of Christianity. That God loves this world and sent his only Son to come and die for it so that we might be right with him and right with one another. That's what Christianity is about and that's the truth that John's talking about here. That's why I'm in relationship with you lot and that's why you're in relationship with each other. We probably don't all turn, play soccer. It's incredibly unlikely we'd all turn up at the same club. That's a good thing for you because I'm hopeless at soccer. But that's what's brought us together. That's what we have in common. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ has brought us into relationship with God and that brings us into relationship with each other. Which brings me to my second point. Loving in the truth. We know that the truth of the gospel is what's brought them together into relationship with God and with each other. But what do we do with that then? Well, he follows up with two commands. And those commands are these. Firstly, walk in the truth. Look at verse 4. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Now they've believed the truth, they're to continue walking in it. They're not to give up on it, but to keep walking. Now he says here that some of them are walking. They're continuing to believe what they were taught and increasingly developing in their knowledge and depth of the truth. And John's response here, I think, is just absolutely beautiful. He doesn't just say, oh, that's good that you're increasing in academic knowledge of the Scriptures. It's good to see that you're passing Doctrine 1 and Doctrine 2 and Doctrine 3. You know, but I'm not really that interested. No, he's absolutely stoked about that. He's saying, I've got great joy that you're getting into the truth. I love it when you drill down into the truth. I love it when you find out more about what God has done. You see, if I talk to you about someone who is passionate for truth, who wants to know more and more about all the details of truth and defend it and die for it, that sounds great, doesn't it? But let me take out the word truth and put in doctrine. Someone who's passionate about doctrine. Someone who would die for doctrine. Someone who loves to drill down into the minutiae of doctrine. It doesn't sound that interesting, does it? It's not the kind of word you associate with joy. It sounds arid and lifeless. Getting into the details of things just to ruin, just seems to ruin things. And yet John's opinion couldn't be further from the truth. He's desperate for people to get down into the details of the truth. He wants them to see the majesty of Christ in all its details. The details don't ruin it, they make it. Ask any car nut. I've got mates who just love cars. I couldn't care about cars. They work, they get me from A to B, they're fantastic. But I go with some of my mates from Tassie, they'll tell me about the donk and the big end and the chassis and the, all, this, all the things they've done to it. They love the details, they can't stop talking about it. How much more with the truths of the Gospel? I want you to picture the Apostle Paul. He's halfway through dictating probably his greatest letter, the letter to the Romans. He has gone through some amazing stuff. He has sketched out in extraordinary details the doctrines of sin, the doctrines of judgment, the doctrines of election, 
the doctrines of the Holy Spirit, of the law, justification, union with Christ. He's dug down into the truth. He is walking in the truth. But does he seem arid? How does he conclude? He breaks into song. For I am convinced, 8.38, I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's his response to doctrine. When he sees all of Christ's truth in its majesty, it breaks into song. He's joyful. That's a joyful thing to see, people continuing to walk in the truth. I've got a friend of mine, he's in Tasmania, his name's Owen. He became a Christian about seven years ago and he is, I've never seen a guy who is so tenacious at wanting to know answers. I was privileged enough to be able to help him along as, from becoming a non-Christian to becoming a Christian and I answered a lot of his questions, a lot of them wrong I'm sure but he kept asking them so I didn't have any choice and uh, so I kept trying to answer them and he was brilliant and he's a, he was a brilliant engineering student and he became a Christian but a couple of years ago, he got struck down, and it's the only word I can really use to describe it, with debilitating depression. Depression so bad that at times he is unable to talk. He has been debilitated by it. He was a master student in engineering. He's now so crippled by this that he's had to take up a part-time job as a gardener. And all those questions which used to be so wanting to know the truth have now plagued him with doubt and yet every time I come home to Tasmania I see how he is and he's still walking in the truth he's still plugging away he's still trusting in Jesus despite the depression despite the doubts he's still hanging in there walking in the truth loving God's word even when it hurts and it just makes me so happy. It's a source of joy for me to see him clinging on and see what God has done in him. It's just a joy and I pray that when you see people clinging on to the truth, getting excited about what God has done, that you'd be joyful too. But that's not the only command that he's given here. He's given the command in verse 4 to walk in the truth but he's also given the command to keep walking in love. Look in verse 5. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Basically, they're to keep caring and looking out for one another. Now, please note, this isn't a command that's independent from the one to love. In fact, verse 6 says, to love is to obey God's commands. In fact, it's the summary of those commands. Romans 13, 9-10 really sums this up nicely, I think. Paul says there, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. And John says as much here in the second half of verse 6. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. God's commands are there to show us what God's love is like and how to live it out. But to carry those commands out you need to know them and believe them. 
And to know those commands, to know what God wants, we can only do it because we've been brought into a relationship with the truth of the Gospel. You see, truth and love aren't enemies. They're not at loggerheads. Not when they work properly together. Rather, they work in beautiful synchrony, if that's a word. Truth should spur us to love. Let me read to you again from 1 John 4, verses 10 to 11. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see that? The truth of the Gospel, the truth of the fact that Jesus came to die for our sins, to die as an atoning sacrifice and loved us in that way should inspire us to love. Truth and love go together. Isn't that important when when we come to ourselves and think of ourselves as sinners? When we know that we shouldn't sin, when we know that we shouldn't bear grudges, when we know that we want to serve God and yet sometimes it's so difficult Sometimes it's really hard, if we're honest, to scratch around for a reason not to do something wrong, not to love others, not to obey God's command. And yet the truth of the Gospel that God has revealed to us encourages us, just as God has loved me, so I should love others. All of the commands are summed up in that. Love God, love each other. I can't bear a grudge against someone here at church because God hasn't borne a grudge against me. I can't covet something that someone else has because God has been so rich in kindness to me. I can't murder someone with anger in my mind because God has given up on anger for me. I can't steal because of God's generosity. Love and truth go together. And they have to be our motivating force. But that brings me to my final point, defending the truth. We've seen from John that the truth of the Gospel is the basis of our relationship here together at church, with God and with each other. And positively, we've been commanded to keep on walking in the truth, to take joy in the fact that people get into the truth and to take joy in our getting into the truth as well. But also to keep walking in love because of that, to be inspired by God's love for us. But negatively, we're also called to defend that truth against attack, which will inevitably come. Look at verse 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. The issue here is that there are other teachers other than John coming around and teaching churches, and in particular this church. And there are teachers here who are saying that Christ was never fully human, but rather a divine being who only looked human. Now that is a core issue. That is a core issue for the Gospel that John is preaching. And so as a result, John makes a very striking judgement against those teachers. He calls them deceivers and the absolute antithesis of what Jesus is all about, an antichrist. 
And to ram that point home, he points out the consequences of their belief. You can see that there in verses 8 and 9. Watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. You see, the uncomfortable truth for us in 21st century Australia is that there are some things you just can't believe and still be a Christian. He's talking here about core truth, core issues which need to be defended. Now, there are some things which are really neither here nor there. And the Bible recognises that fact. How you baptise a kid, how you organise your church, whether or not you eat meat or vegetables, whether or not you drink alcohol or not, they're all really neither here nor there and we want to have a lot of flex there. In fact, more flex than I think we do. But there are some things that you just can't bend on because you start changing the very nature of the faith that we've been entrusted with. Think about a game of rugby. Uh, Rugby is a game that is constantly evolving and having its rules changed. It's infuriating trying to watch the World Cup because I have enough difficulty following rugby at the best of times. When there's differences with the offside rule and then someone's coming in from the side and I'm thinking that's a great hit but then he gets pulled up for it, I just don't understand. But they're minor changes. It's still identifiably rugby that they're playing. But if they brought in a new rule that said, oh, well, actually, you can, you can throw the ball forward now. Well, actually, we're going to change that. You can't actually throw the ball at all. You've got to kick the ball. And we're going to change the ball from an oval to a sphere. And you're not going to score tries anymore. You'll score goals through a square thing with a net at the back. Well, you go too far down that line and you've committed a total travesty which has turned rugby into soccer. There's only so much change that can go go about before one thing becomes something totally different. And that's exactly what these false teachers are doing. This is not a small thing that they're talking about. It's core doctrine and they're changing the game. So what's this church to do about it? Well, we see that there in verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. They're not to welcome them into their house. In this context, I think that's almost certainly the church which would have have met in a house. And that means that they're not to have them teach there. The truth is just too important. It's what connects them to God. It's what connects them to each other. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, what doesn't it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we go dividing, as I said, over disputable issues, baptism and church government, whether someone should drink or not. I don't want to be stopping fellowshipping with genuine Christian people because we have an honest disagreement over something. We have a positive duty to maintain Christian fellowship with those people. Nor does it mean, I think, that uniting with people from other viewpoints, even other religions, on everything is wrong. Say a march against abortion, to take one example, where there might be all sorts of groups involved, may be quite appropriate. But what it does mean is that where issues of truth are being preached and explained in a public setting, we cannot join with people who have changed the game, who are playing soccer rather than rugby. We can't have people who disagree with us on core issues preaching in our churches. Let me read to you a quote from someone. Since God can no longer be conceived in theistic terms, it becomes nonsensical to seek to understand Jesus as the incarnation of God. 
That was said by an Anglican minister, John Shelby Spong. He's been in Australia recently and the Archbishop of Sydney took the controversial step of banning him from pulpits. I hope you can understand why he banned him from pulpits. That's a right thing to do. It's unpopular, but it was right. But as individuals, don't we also need to be careful in the way we treat truth? It's so easy. We have such a smorgasbord of churches here in Sydney from which to choose, from which to go along, from which to give our implicit support. We have sermons from all over the world via the internet and iPod. We can listen to any number of teachings on the internet, on radio, on tape, any number of things. We need to be careful that we don't accidentally even support people who are teaching wrong doctrine, who are teaching things that are not core to Christianity. The truth of the Gospel is what binds us together. The truth is the basis of why we relate to God and to each other. Because of that truth, we need to love one another while still walking in truth. But we also need to defend it because ultimately the Gospel is all we've got. It's our one hope in this world and we throw it away and we throw away our lives. We keep it and as John says, we keep our lives. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth, that you are not a God who is unknowable or who has not made himself known to us but rather that you have shown us the truth of your character and how much you care for us through sending your only son Jesus to die on the cross for us and to rise again so that we might be in relationship with you. And we thank you for the unity that that gives us here at church, that that truth is what draws us together. I pray that as we dwell on that, we might be always eager to continue to walk in truth constantly seeking to dive into your word more and more so that we can know you better but also that that might overflow in love that we might care for one another inspired by your care for us but Father we also don't want to be naive because we know that truth is not accepted by everyone and is under constant attack we need constantly to be on our guard against it please help us to not be overly defensive and not to break fellowship with people with whom we shouldn't, but for those issues of core doctrine where people have changed the game, please help us to set our faces like flint and to champion your truth above everything else. Please help us to be strong in that so that we might be people who truly are people of truth and love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.